0: Hello, and welcome to As We Wait, an in depth verse by verse study through the entire Bible. Join Pastor and Teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part one of a two part study of Judges chapters 4 and 5. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along? Please turn to Judges chapter 4, beginning at verse 1.
1: morning we're going to be in Judges chapters 4 and 5 together, as we continue to work our way through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter. Judges chapter 4, beginning now at verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Heresheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and twenty years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she went and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw towards Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Tali, and the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, then I won't go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zetanim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Ebenoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Heresheth of the Gentiles unto the river Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and his host with the edge of the sword before Barak so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Herosheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in unto me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk, and gave him drink, and covered him. Again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be, when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there any man here? Thou shalt say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him. And smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Gracious Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth and, Lord, the wisdom that's contained in your word. And we thank you that, Lord, your word is all about you. Your word tells us, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Help us to see you this morning, Lord. Help us to hear your voice. Draw us to yourself, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the first three verses, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. We see again that the cycle of disobedience and bondage just starts over again. It's kind of a sad commentary. It's it's a sad cycle because we see it. it's like a worn-out tire. The nation has just experienced 80 years of peace. This is the longest stretch that they'll have through the book of Judges where there's actually any kind of peace in the land. As soon as Ehud, the previous judge, dies, they fall right back into their idolatry, right back into rebellion against God. And seemingly they've forgotten everything that they've learned. When we talk about terms like reformation or revival or even repentance, you have to understand what these terms mean. Unfortunately, the children of Israel had been involved in reformation. They were formed their behavior, their appearance on the outside, but their hearts weren't truly changed towards the Lord. And I've been there. I've been, quote-unquote, reformed before, where I was able to change the outside, act like I was doing good, and give the appearance of walking rightly and so forth. But the inside, my heart wasn't any different. It wasn't until I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior that true revival took place in my heart and my life. And that's the distinction, an inward change that brings forth an outward appearance that's genuine. And here the children of Israel have pretty much just been, quote, unquote, playing at church. Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. and They enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. There's the understanding that you're saying that nature abhors a vacuum. And in spiritual things, there's no such thing as a vacuum. I've seen many people try to clean up their lives and do it by their own will, by the will of the flesh, if you will, and look good on the outside. And seemingly, as Jesus describes here, that demon leaves. But Unless you fill that void, unless you fill that vacuum in your life with the Holy Spirit, unless there's a true, genuine work of God, it'll just start over again. It'll seemingly get worse. And I've watched these cycles in a lot of different people's lives. You know, you can't just act good. (laughs) We can't just put on the appearance. It has to be genuine. And we can't even make it genuine unless God helps us. We have to invite him into our hearts, into our lives, to fill our lives. There would be no more room for these other things. At the turn of the century, there was a famous preacher by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday was on the scene preaching with an intensity that some say hasn't been matched since then. He'd been a professional baseball player. He'd been, in today's terms, we would call it a party animal, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And his life had been impacted and touched by sin, and he recognized sin for what it was. And he's known for this quote that I'm going to read to you. He says, I'm against sin. I will kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head and I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum on it until I go home to glory, and it goes to perdition. To me, I like this because it it demonstrates a fighting attitude. It demonstrates a guy that just will not tolerate sin, and he's going to fight it to his last breath. And that's part of the problem with the children of Israel, and that's part of our problem as a culture, that we're just too easy on ourselves at times. We're not willing to fight sin. You know, We have to hate sin and hate the result of it. Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, he says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And we have to truly hate evil. We have to understand that the impact it's going to have on our life and the life of those around us and be willing to fight against it, even if it means to the last tooth. Now, there's different characters throughout these next couple of chapters, and one of the main characters is Jabin, the king of Hazor. And his name, Jabin, actually literally means he understands or intelligent what I equate that to is the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness to God. The other character on the other side, if you will, is Sisera, Jabin's main general. And his name means battle array. It means kind of like set in battle. And Jabin is the king of Hazor. Now the map I put up behind me, it shows the the different tribes of Israel with their allotments and where they ended up in the land. And Hazor is, this is the Sea of Galilee up here, and then just north of that is the city of Hazor. During Joshua's time, the city of Hazor was actually conquered and burned to the ground, okay? And now we've got the king of Hazor is dominating the children of Israel. He's put them under tribute. That's because even though they destroyed the city, they didn't destroy the people as God had commanded. And later on, they raise up, they get to the point where they're strong, they've got a king, they've got an army, they've got chariots, and they turn things completely around and they dominate the nation of Israel. And that's how it works with sin, If we don't deal with our sin in a biblical way and exterminate it completely and kill it and eradicate it and fight it tooth and nail, if you will, it will one day dominate us. It will One day it'll take over our lives and we will find ourselves in bondage to that sin. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with the nation of Israel. Sisera commanded an army of 900 iron chariots. Now 900 chariots is a formidable force, number one. I mean, a chariot in those days is like a tank. When they invented tanks during World War I, and they just started creaming people out because it's like, what do you do against a weapon like that? And it's the same thing. If you're an infantryman, you stand in ranks, you've got spears and uh, archery and, and swords, that kind of stuff. If some guy comes along and he's got a couple of horses teamed up to a, an iron chariot, they just drive right over the top of you. It was a scary weapon. This guy didn't just have 10 or 15 or 20. He had 900 of them. And on top of that, you don't just send the chariots out by themselves. They come accompanied with possibly cavalry and with infantry troops, all kinds of stuff. So we're talking about a pretty formidable force. It's easy to see why they dominated the nation of Israel, because as we'll read on, they didn't have any weapons. I mean, they weren't a warrior nation, so to speak. The days of Joshua had passed them by. They're into an agrarian culture, and they're pretty much defenseless against this group. And it says that they mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Prior to this, in the previous Judges' they were oppressed, you know, or they had to serve for X amount of years. But this is the first time that they're, quote, unquote, mightily oppressed. This speaks to intensity, to the intent of the people that are doing the evil things against them. It's also the longest period of time thus far. It's been 20 years. So as before, the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. It is cool that even though, once again, they've fallen into this cycle, that when they do finally cry out to the Lord, the Lord answers. And we see that now in verse 4. It says, And Deborah... A prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah or Rama and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now the name Deborah means bee, as in like honeybee, and she's a prophetess. She's the wife of Lapidoth, which means lightnings. And it says that Deborah judged Israel. The people came to her for judgment. The people came to her for counsel, to settle disputes, and, and she was pretty much. In a certain sense, in the shoes of Moses during that time, or Joshua, she was the leader. But this statement is very telling. I mean, in verse 1, it talks about the nation of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You can glean a lot from that statement. But the fact that Deborah, a woman, is raised up to judge Israel is very telling. Where are the men? Are the men not willing to stand up? Are there no qualified men? I don't think so. I think the issue was there weren't any men that were willing. The Bible talks about spiritual leadership and who's to be a spiritual leader and so forth, but in a male-dominated culture as the Hebrew culture was, this is just another symptom of their spiritually weakened state. And it's really kind of a pathetic state where finally a woman has to stand up and do the work of a man. And it says a lot about the men. Men are called to be the spiritual leaders, and apparently there aren't any willing to stand up and fulfill that duty. Paul talks or writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, He says, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to use super authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, this is not a value statement for any of you that might right now, kind of your blood's boiling or something. Uh, This is not a value statement. It's not that Deborah wasn't qualified. I mean, she was a wise woman and she was willing. The issue is more of a functional hierarchy that God has set in place. Later on in the New Testament, Paul says in Galatians three twenty eight, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So it's not a value statement, it's a statement about function or functionality and how God sets things up. And the nation has been, in a sense, apostate, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and so God says, Okay, fine, I'll find someone that is willing. And apparently Deborah was willing. Now, also in Isaiah chapter three, verse twelve, along the same lines, Isaiah records, As for my people. Children are their oppressors, and women shall rule over them. If you read through that chapter in Isaiah, it's kind of interesting that, you know, he talks about children being their oppressors and women ruling over them. And what he's describing is a form of judgment, that when you're not walking in my ways, when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, these things will take place. And that's pretty much what's taking place here. Not that she was doing a bad job, just that the men weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Again, it's kind of a sad statement. And the case in point comes to us here now in verse 6. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw towards Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into your hand. Here we see that Deborah challenges Barak and says, Haven't you been told... To me, that means you know, she's a prophet. She's speaking for God. And what she's saying is, you have been told. <laughs> you know What are you doing? I mean, he didn't show up with 10,000 guys. He didn't, hey, i got a plan. What do you think? She goes to him and in a certain sense rebukes him or, or chastens him. So, Haven't you been told? Don't you hate that when you know you're supposed to do something and then someone else tells you, hey, why aren't you doing such and such? I mean, when I was a kid, I hated it when I knew I was supposed to take out the trash that so my mom or my dad hey, Mike, take the trash out. It's like, oh, I knew I was supposed to do that. And here I get the same sense that he'd already known what he was supposed to do. And again, like all the other men, wasn't really doing it. And it's kind of sad. And he's told, gather the men of war, go to Mount Tabor, and I'm going to draw Sisera to you. And when he gets there, I'm going to deliver him into your hand. That to me is kind of a cool scenario in a certain way, because you know what? He's been told ahead of time, even though there's going to be a formidable force, 900 chariots of iron and all this kind of stuff, I'm going to deliver them into your hand. He's operating from the understanding that God has given him the victory. That's how we're supposed to operate as well. Jesus Christ gave us the victory on the cross. The enemy is already defeated. We operate from a a place of victory. Not that we take anything for granted. But we understand that ultimately God wins. And we're tied in with him. And so we're winners as well. And so we can go into every battle knowing that God is with us. And I like the confidence of knowing that. And then in verses 8 and 9, it says, And Barak said unto her, If you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you won't go with me, then I won't go. Now, does that sound weak to anybody besides me? <laughs> it's like, well, Mommy, if you'll go with me, I'll go. <laughs> it's like, oh, please. Now, it could be also, hey, this is your idea. Put up or shut up, let's go. It could be that. But I think that Barak has got some serious faith issues going on. Because, you see, fear is the opposite of faith. If he'd been a faithful man, if if he'd truly taken heed to God's word, we might not have ever even heard of Deborah. He would have just gone and said, okay, and we'd be reading about Barak, the judge of Israel. But God had to raise up a woman to kind of prod him along. Now I praise God for the woman that God's raised up in my life to prod me along at times. And that can be a good thing. But here we see that he's not really demonstrating courage. It's interesting, and I haven't really studied this all the way through, But later on when you get to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it's considered the hall of faith. Guess whose name is mentioned? Barak, not Deborah. And so at some point he's redeemed in all this because he's singled out as a man of faith, but it starts seemingly at the urging of a woman. Now, being a prophetess, Deborah speaks for God. And perhaps you know Barak's relationship with God was so weak or whatever that he needed to have her there, and I could see that in some ways. But know as well that back in Deuteronomy, Moses records in Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1, that they're going to face these problems. This is not something they shouldn't have expected. In Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more than you, be not afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God says, you're going to face this somewhere down the road. And when it happens, don't worry, I'm with you. And That should be a word of encouragement to all of us. So Deborah chides Barak, and then It says that the Lord's going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. He says, And she said, I will surely go, verse 9, with you, notwithstanding the journey that you take shall not be for your honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. I wonder if that was a long trip. I'm not sure how his attitude was, but he gets there. Then we get to verse 10. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. Now we have a kind of a parenthetical break here. It says, Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zaanim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak the son of Abinoam was gone up to Mount Tabor. Now what's happening here is there was a family, that, if you will, there were the relatives or the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, remember the priest of Midian. And before they left the land of Egypt, as they were in that process and the wilderness leaving, there was the offering, of, hey, do you want to come with us? And they go, no, we'll do our own thing. Well, then later on, we see through the book of Joshua that they rejoined the children of Israel, and they actually settled in the land of Judah, and the Kenites. And so they're in that land somehow, and they've now separated themselves from them, and they've migrated north. Now we're talking about a group basically of nomadic herdsmen. Okay? They're not really tied down to one territory. They move around. And what's happened is they've seen not only the layout of the land, but they've seen the political layout as well. They see that King Jabin and his general Sisera pretty much run things. It's kind of like testing the wind. Oh, okay, we're going to go with the winners for now. And so basically they're going with Sisera. And so they inform Jabin, the king of Canaan, that the Israelites have mobilized They're preparing for war, and they're headed towards Mount Tabor. And basically, they snitch him off. And so Sisera now, as we see in the next few verses, verse 13, And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Heresheth of the Gentiles unto the river Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, and 10,000 men after him. And so Barak gathers the 10,000 men that come from Zebulun and Naphtali. He gets dimed off. And it's interesting because, I mean, you look at it like he informed on him, which he did, but God uses this to draw Sisera, his chariots and their army, to the perfect place, even though it's an open field battle, it's going to be kind of like an ambush. Now, the place where they're drawn to, they're coming from Hazor, Here's the sea of galilee that black dot right there is basically hazor they're being drawn down to mount tabor and mount tabor there's a valley and this is the valley right here this guy is standing on the top of mount tabor if you can see that and the valley that he's looking down into is the valley of jezreel or megiddo okay and this has a lot of end times significance across the way over there this is mount carmel and so the valley in between is a river that only runs for part of the year in that area. The river's actually only six miles long from the Mediterranean, but during the winter months, the rainy months, it actually goes all the way up to Mount Tabor and runs quite a ways. And the springtime in Israel, that's the time when the generals went to war. They waited till the ground was dry and hard, when they could move their stuff around, move their people around, and not get bogged down in the mud. And that's probably when this battle took place, because Cicero's not an idiot. He's got 900 chariots. He knows the ideal conditions for those things to operate, So when he goes out to chase after the children of Israel at Mount Tabor, he's expecting dry land, he's expecting favorable conditions and so forth. And what happens is, I'm going to get ahead of the story just a little bit, is he gets there to basically confront the children of Israel. God brings a bunch of rain. We'll read that God disconfited them, and it rains, the water comes down off the mountains, the playground, if you will, turns to mud, and you can't pull chariots around, you can't fight. And now these guys are stuck in their chariots, and they're easy prey for the Israelis to come down, And take care of them. And so this is basically the scene of the battle that will take place. And so God uses the Kenites, if you will, to draw the Canaanites into the battle, which is kind of cool. Later on, as you go through the Book of Revelation, take a good look at that valley. It will have blood in it up to a horse's bridle. Okay, that's a big valley. That'll be a lot of blood. And so uh, the site of future battles. But moving on now to verse 15, it says, And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harosheth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Now, again, big army. God's told the children of Israel in the past, Kill them all, wipe them all out. And in this instance, that's exactly what they do. Every man of the opposing force is slain. And then in verse 17, howbeit, Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Again, God has placed these important events into the hands of a woman. And it's interesting as well, it's the wife of the guy that snitched off the Jewish army, Okay, there was peace between their houses because they'd informed and told Jabin, hey, the Israelites are mobilizing, they're on the move, and so they send Cicero out to get them and stuff. But J.L., this woman that we're talking about, I really like looking at names and seeing what they mean. It's always kind of fun. And they always have significance. And I thought for sure that when I looked her up, her name would be like Peggy or something like that because of what she ends up doing. And um, anyway, her name actually means mountain goat. So... Any of you little girls want to be named Mountain Goat? Uh, No, but it also means climber because mountain goats climb. And the way I see this is she was a political climber. I mean, when the wind was blowing this way and it was to her advantage to side with Jabin and Sisera, she informed on Israel and, and figured she'd stay on the winning side. But when she sees now Sisera running on foot, here's a general, general of the army, that's known for having this force of chariots. She'd probably never seen the guy on foot before. And now he's running, he's out of breath, he's fleeing from something. And she's probably figured out, uh, (laughs) it looks like they lost. And so now she switches sides about that fast and says, hey, come on into my tent. And things begin to play out.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California teaching Part 1 of a two-part in-depth study of Judges, Chapters 4 and 5. Please join us again next time for Part 2 as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you.